0: Praise waited for thee, O God in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. It's bow hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us open our hymn books to 185 185. ask God Almighty for your continued blessings through Christ Jesus and the promise of your covenant upon us, God, and that we, by the strength of your Spirit, would persevere this evening, Lord, with joy in our hearts, thankful to be together, and to sing praises and psalms before you, and to hear your word, and to be strengthened in God towards a life of sanctification and holiness. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hymn five hundred thirty-eight, five three eight. 538. 538. One through four. One through four. we do rejoice god almighty that we who are your people are have and are and are being redeemed lord and shall be completely established in salvation when christ jesus returns lord and we will give a new body and a new heaven and a new earth we long for that day our god and savior even as we pray now in the times in which we find ourselves in this valley of tears we pray and ask God. Uh, for peace and prosperity and protection, uh, Lord, across this nation, in particular uh, among your people, God, for peace in our homes, peace between us, Lord, and not just peace of relationships, God, but uh, peace of uh, protection of our bodies, Lord and uh, peace with respect to our nation and other nations across the world, Lord, that we would not seek out war, but rather, Lord, seek out peace, even with our uh, enemies, God, short of being invaded, God, we should not uh, seek out uh, warfare and the like. And so, God, we pray for peace across our nation, and of course, for protection of our churches, Lord, in particular, and for prosperity, God, not because we wish to be rich and get lost in our riches, Lord, but rather, God, that we would have the prosperity that can be used for the good of those in need, for the poor among us, for ourselves and our children, our children's children, Lord God Almighty, uh, that we can establish and prepare ourselves for rainy days and difficult times ahead. And so, Lord, we pray for a strong economy in spite of what we have now and the weaknesses and concerns that we have. and Uh, Poor access to good jobs. There are not as many good jobs as there used to be uh, when I was younger, Lord, and many other such problems that have come upon us, Lord, in various and sundry ways. We don't always know exactly where it came from or what the solution always is, but we can always go to you and pray, God, and know that you have established a church in the midst of a world, in the midst of physical and economic Conditions And so we pray, Lord, for physical and economic prosperity and protection for the church and for her members, Lord, for the uh, young and old alike, and especially for those who are at high risk and are poor and needy. And Lord God Almighty, we pray for protection. Protection uh, during this time and season in which we see more and more anger and bloodlust because Roe v. Wade has been overthrown, Lord, and people are angry that they are going to be inconvenienced by their own actions and the fruits of their own actions, God Almighty. We certainly pray for the repentance and ask, God, uh, that you would hold them back from their bloodlust, from their anger, and from, Lord, their threats upon uh, the leaders of our land, Lord, upon the judges of the Supreme Court, and upon others, Lord, across this nation, God, and threats and even damage they've done upon uh, churches and uh, institutions to help those who are struggling, God, and need help and better guidance, Lord, instead of killing their babies. And so, God Almighty, we do pray for protection, and especially uh, for your church and your people, but also, Lord, for our neighbors. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, continue to be with us, we pray and ask. And, Lord, we ask particularly for our work situations. Thankful, God, for the young among us, the youth. Um, the blocks the marriage to come uh, that uh, they have good employment and that they have a place to live and pray for the rest of us god that we would have continued good employment as well and god uh, that uh, we would work as unto the lord as unto you and that you give us wisdom on how to perhaps be a better worker be a better boss or employer perhaps find a new job whatever the case is god always come before you praying and asking god that you would continue to give us what we need uh, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, God, that we would have bread on the table and shelter over our head, clothes on our back, to be thankful for what we de- do have, Lord, but also not to be naive in these matters and do what we can by the providence you've given us and the abilities to know our strengths and weaknesses, Lord, and to save up our monies and funds, Lord, to help one another, to give tithes and offerings so that we can and be with those who are in need. And God Almighty, our Lord and Savior, you who love us with an everlasting love, may we continue to grow in love and grace and in obedience to your word, one day at a time, not to be discouraged, God, uh, but to carry on, Lord, what we can do in our responsibilities that you've given us by your strength, we pray. We ask that you be with us, especially this evening, as you promise in your word. For your glorious name's sake, God, and for the expansion of your kingdom, we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We are grateful, indeed, God Almighty, that we can give these tithes and offerings and pray for wisdom in the church, and not just our church, Lord, our Presbyterian denomination to the extent that the tithes are funneled through us and to other uh, useful endeavors in the kingdom of God, that they would be used wisely and uh, efficiently by your spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Once a month in the evening, as you know, I've been going through the Psalms. We're on Psalm 34, so it's the 34th month, or roughly. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him, and delivers him. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O fear the Lord. You, his saints, there is, no, there is no want to those who fear him. The young lion lacks and suffers hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and all those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Let us pray. Spirit of truth and life, and ye who, through the pen of David, has written this psalm for us even this day. We ask, Lord, that we would be encouraged and strengthened to trust in you, Lord, and that We who trust in you are indeed blessed by you, God. Happy is he who trusts in you. And may that be our watchword, Lord. And may that be our encouragement to persevere, to continue to trust in you, to know that you love us, you are watching over us, and you protect us, God Almighty, and you lead us through Christ Jesus, whose bones were never broken, and God, as a... Picture, of course, of his work for us, but also a picture beyond that of our redemption through Christ Jesus, in which we'll have a new body and our bones will never break ever again to Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. Psalm 34 is an interesting Psalm. Not a lot of Psalms do this, but this one does. It is an alphabetical psalm in which each stanza begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it's going through the Hebrew alphabet. However, it does skip one of the letters, and it doubles another letter. You don't need to know the letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Just that it's an interesting quirk that occurs not only here, but also in Psalm 25. So the poetry they have, as I've told you before, is a poetry of parallelisms. The symmetry is not with the rhythm of sounds like you have in our our poetry in English, typical children's poetry, comes to mind especially. About a rhythm of ideas, a parallel of ideas, or expansion of ideas, and here he mis- mixes that uh, typical Hebraic parallelism, is called, parallel ideas and stanzas, and lots of translations you'll see that, they're set, set apart. Uh, but he does it alphabetically, it goes to the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, and so his poetry is even more beautiful that way if you know some Hebrew. But for us, the content is much more uh, significant for that is what God has given us, knowing that it would have to be translated thousands of years later into English. So the first point we have, the first three verses, I have four points in this sermon. So I get to longer psalms, I'm going to have a lot more points probably. Blessing the Lord, verses 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. That's how he starts out the psalm, uh, with a heart of praise to his God Almighty. It sets a happy tone of David for this psalm, unlike other psalms in which he bemoans his sins or struggles with enemies around him and troubles. Uh, here it's mostly a happiness. Here it's a hope, uh, that an exuberance that continues to build up and, and grows through uh, the language here of the psalm in which he almost talks to himself, it seems, encourages other people to come before God Almighty and trust and follow him and bless him. And this is a mindset, clearly. I will bless the Lord at all times. Obviously, it's not literal in the sense that, oh, well, I'm in the middle of combat here. Oh, excuse me, Philistine, I have to bless God. He's just saying whenever the opportunity arises, he's going to bless the Lord. He has a mindset, a heart disposition, so that he's ready to do these things, in particular to thank the Lord Almighty, to set him apart, to boast in him. Because his Lord, our Lord, and God is that marvelous indeed. He boasts in God, verse 2. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord, the humble shall hear of it and be glad. In Psalm 44, 8, we read, using the same word of boast, In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. And in contrast, we read in Psalm 49, 6, Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches. They boast in themselves, they boast in what they have and their self-sufficiency, Instead, we're supposed to boast in God, and his mercy, and his might, indeed, for he is ours, and we can rejoice in his power. There is a boasting, although it can't be uh, translated um, praise elsewhere. Boasting is a fine translation. It's an interesting word that has an overlap there, uh, as as we know in multiple different kinds of languages and how words work. And so here, there is a way in which we can speak of boasting, but it's boasting of God. He is our God. I suppose it's like a child who boasts of their father. He's a gr- My dad's great. He's wonderful. He knows all kinds of things. He does wonderful things for our family. He takes care of us. And so we boast of our Lord and our Savior, who has indeed taken care of us and watched over us and continues, continues to protect us. He says, the humble shall hear of it and be glad. So, verse 2 in my translation, you have it set off here, My soul shall make its boast of the Lord, one line. Next line, the humble shall hear of it and be glad. There are They are in parallel. When in doubt, they're probably in parallel when it comes to the Psalms because of biblical poetry is parallelisms. They're saying the same thing in two different ways. Or they're saying a similar idea and expanding on that idea in the next verse. Or the third one, which doesn't happen as often, is contrasting parallelism, or antith- antithetical, that's what it was, parallelism, in which you say the opposite. And so here, clearly, to make boast in the Lord is to be glad in the Lord, to be happy and to rejoice in Him. And so He is, and that's why His heart is always ready to boast and praise and exalt and lift Him up on high. Verse 3, "'You'll magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together.'" To magnify is to parallel with exalt, to lift up, to tell the world and say, this is the God and King of kings and Lord of lords. There's no one else like him. And I rejoice that he is my God, my covenant-keeping God, right? That's what we see here, Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, Yahweh. And that's the covenant promise. Implied always when he cries out to the Lord and he blesses the Lord and he's happy about the Lord because that promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a unique promise, a special that we are set apart from the world, as I mentioned this morning with the badge of the Lord's Supper. God is so glorious and exalted that even his name is special. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Now, obviously, it's not just his name as though it's magical, but that God is so holy, so marvelous, and so magnificent. Even his name, we, we speak with reverence, let alone his person, right? All the more for his person. If we take his name seriously, and we don't just flippantly say the word all the time or write it down like it's a graffiti on the wall, that's how marvelous and holy our God is. We take even the uttering of sound across our lips, you know, the movement of air across our lips that sounds out the word, the Lord, our God, our Father, and we say it with reverence. And that's a way of exalting or magnifying and showing that he is better and greater than all things of this world and around us. We exalt and lift up his name above all whenever we praise him in song, whenever we praise him in prayer, and whenever we praise him with our lips wherever we may be, no matter what time or place. He doesn't say what he's doing. We know what he's doing here. It's a psalm. Verses 4-10. through ten, Trust in the Lord. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked and were radiant. The poor man cried out, and he saved them from his trouble. But oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Blessed is the man who trusts in in him. Verse 8b. And so, in this section here, to help organize the psalm for for preaching in particular, I'm going to emphasize the idea of trusting the Lord. Obviously, he trusts the Lord when he wants to bless the Lord, when he wants to magnify God. You don't magnify uh, someone here in this context, God Almighty, unless he rests in him already. And here he makes explicit in verse 8. Before we get there, we have verse 4. Seeking the Lord I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. He seeks God because he trusts in God. He seeks no one else. And seeking here, of course, is a metaphor The way, the language you use in the Old Testament, the Hebraic way of thinking. not just the Hebraic way of thinking, frankly. The entire ancient Near East culture was like this because they lived close to the earth unlike us. Right? 90% farmers. 95% farmers. So they have a lot of earthy and concrete ways of speaking and of describing theological truths. And so here the idea of seeking God does not exclude, not what I'm saying from that metaphor, his trust and faith. He seeks because he believes. He knows he can only go to God Almighty for protection from his fears, from his enemies perhaps, and from his sins, certainly. The Old Testament men and women of God were full of trust in the Lord and they sought him. Day and night. They sought Him through prayer. They sought Him through the sacraments. Sacrifices with prayer. Right? The sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And God indeed hears Him. I sought Him, and He heard me. And He just didn't hear me. He delivered me. We read in the next stanza. From my fears. Your prayers and your worries and your concerns. The Lord, your God, He hears them, brothers and sisters. You can go to Him and bring your worries and your fears And he does not turn you away because of Christ Jesus. Now he unpacks this idea of hearing and delivering from the fears in verse 15 and following. So not yet. He's building up to that point. Verse 5, radiant. They look to him, the humble, of course, and those who trust in him. He speaks of the humble in verse 2, which is... um, A sub-theme, another way of speaking of those who trust in God through the Old Testament. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. So, the idea of radiant is the opposite of being ashamed, right? And Embarrassed, your face is red, and your eyes are cast down. But rather, you stand up strong and not ashamed, because God Almighty is your Lord and Savior. You cry to him, he hears you, he delivers you, and so you can stand firm against the enemies of God which is usually the case for David, right? The enemies of God, literal men who wish to kill him. And the poor man cries out, and the Lord hears him and saves him out of all his troubles. And so it's a picture of confidence, of trust, and the fruit thereof in trusting God and crying out and praying to him. It is a victory that they have that's implied here, and that's why we can boast in our God and not be ashamed from the enemies who mock us who mock David, as we know through the stories of 1 Samuel, as we go through Wednesday night uh, Bible study. And they, King Saul in particular, come after them. So, the Lord encamps around them. Verse 6, the poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. So again, he reiterates here this idea of seeking God, he hears, he delivers. And when they seek God, they're no longer ashamed, and God protects them, even the poor man who cries out. Now, David calls himself poor. Do you think he's saying, I have no money? Do you think he's saying, I have no lands? Or is the idea of poverty here, poverty of the soul, of one who is humble, one who is contrite? The word humble is used before. Contrite is going to be used a little later, as we read. Contrite is one who is repentant and feels their sin. That's what he means by the poor. And it's not about poverty per se. That's mentioned elsewhere, of course, in the Bible, as we've talked about uh, public justice uh, in the Old Testament context of uh, the book of uh, Micah, for example. But here, he's probably in a situation where he is persecuted and outnumbered, as we read in other Psalms. It's typical in David's life, and yet God protects him and encamps all around him. And who encamps around him? Verse 7. Who is protecting him like a host of an army surrounding David and his men, apparently? He talks about us elsewhere. The angel of the Lord. And who is the angel of the Lord? Praise be to God. We know who he is. It's Jesus Christ. The angel of Yahweh, as one commentator summarizes all the evidence of the Old Testament, is mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. He can speak of himself as Yahweh, or Lord, L-O-R-D, right, all caps, and yet is, in some ways, differentiated from Yahweh the Father. And we know of those incidences of, um, the leaders of the Old Testament, who met the angel of the Lord and were in awe of who he was and bowed down before him even. And sometimes he's even called the angel of his presence. And so we have then, in the Old Testament, a a stronger than a hint, evidence that there is a Trinity, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is one of those texts in which we understand the Old Testament saints knew more than we fully understand what they knew had a better understanding, um, but probably certainly not to the extent that we have, because we have the New Testament. Christ has literally come in the flesh, in time and space, and dwelt among us. And so the whole New Testament is written to explain that reality. In the Old Testament, they had a shadow of that coming reality. Enough of a shadow to see that there is this angel of the Lord who is special and part of deity. Jesus, in other words, protected him, and he protects us. He is a messenger of the Lord. Remember, angel is a messenger, and elsewhere, the messenger of the Lord. Describing the prophecies of Christ's coming, who is a messenger of the Lord, the ultimate messenger and leader for us. The summary of the psalm up to this point, verse 8, perhaps the pivot of the whole psalm. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, there is, for there's no want for those who fear Him. And he describes of a lion who wants a young lion who has the strength to get his food, but he can't. But we're not like him, even though we're weaker than the lion. God provides for us, and we lack no good. That's the image of there in verse 10. So in verse eight, as I back up here, what tastes is he that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. They're parallel, right? That's. The characteristic of Hebrew poetry. So the man who trusts in God is one who tastes and sees that the Lord is good. You see that? And so we see the metaphor of tasting and seeing is not literally eating the body of Christ like the Roman Catholics argue, but rather the mouth of faith or the eye of faith who sees God, although he does not see him with his fleshly eyes, who taste the Lord, although he doesn't actually taste his body, that is, he has the effects of the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us regeneration and illumination and a new life and gives us faith that is trust and reliance upon God Almighty and no one else for our salvation. That is what we're reading here. And this is the hope of the Old Testament saints as much as it is ours. And so in the Lord's Supper, we have a taste, and we have a, a seeing. But it's not the taste and seeing of the eyes or the hand as such, but rather of the heart that believes and follows the Lord. God is a good God. And so the picture here is the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the deliverance of God, because he's talked about deliverance already a couple times. Or salvation, it could be translated. is something that's wonderful to behold, to see, and to taste. And so God is good in giving us the Lord's Supper that we taste and see. But of course, he doesn't want us to rely upon our flesh, but rather uses that to strengthen our weak faith. That we really believe and trust in him. Even without the Lord's Supper. Even if we didn't have access to the Bible or a church, God would be with us and He has transformed us and we will always believe. But He is good and so He's given us many of these things to help prop up our weak faith. And to believe as they did. To see and know that the Lord is good. And we are blessed indeed. Blessed is the man who trusted Him. Uh, the, I think, that, was it this title? It was another translation of mine, I think it was. It must be in the, on the computer. It gives a the heading. They typically give you a heading. They're trying to summarize, an uninspired heading. They're trying to summarize the psalm for you. And it says, happy is a man who trusts in God. And you can translate blessed as happy. That's true. I don't like to do that because happy in the American context tends to be very subjective. Well, I don't feel happy. I had a miserable week. I mean, I was sick for, what, 12, 11 days, 10 days. I didn't feel very happy feel very blessed if that's what you think happiness is. But Blessedness, rather, is an objective state of who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ. Regardless of your circumstances, brothers and sisters. You have a saved soul. God has promised to save you in spite of your sins. Forever and ever. Amen. That's blessedness for those who trust in him. Hopefully some happiness comes out of it. You can be happy, or we're encouraged to rejoice in God. Not rejoice in that we're being persecuted, rejoice that you're poor, rejoice that you've lost money, rejoice that you're sick, but rather the New Testament emphasizes you rejoice in the specific context of being saved. I'm happy I'm saved, even though I feel miserable right now. You can do both. It's perfectly possible. So don't take those admonitions of blessedness, of happiness, in the Old and New Testament, as though it was just simply, "Hey, get get your emotions going, get all excited." That's good. And there's a time for that, and I want you to do that. That's true. But don't rely upon that. It comes and goes. The fear of God, verses nine to fourteen. So there's an overlap here. He talks about trust. He talks about fear. We've talked about this before. I preached on this before about fear, how fear is part of the Christian life. Fear is not contrary to trust. It's not contrary to love, even. Fear and faith go together. They go together in the Old Testament. They go together in the New Testament. It's the human condition. If David can fear God and trust him, we can fear God and trust him. We are not better than him. Now, he says here, Oh, fear the Lord, your saints, for there is no want to those who fear him. There's that old use of the word want or lack, for there's no lack. We don't use that word want that way anymore. I don't know why, but we don't. There is no lack for those who fear him. Now, there is a lack and there isn't a lack. There is no lack at the end of the day when Christ Jesus returns and we have a new heaven and a new earth and a better body. There is no lack. There will be no more pain. No more sorrow, no more sin, no more starvation, no more trouble. There will be no lack, no want, no needs anymore. Meanwhile, we will have lack and needs and wants, and we have them now. I was sick, you've been sick. We have various uh, difficulties in life, but those are temporary The psalmist understands that. And even here and now, there is no lack with respect to our soul. God has justified us. God has adopted us. God is sanctifying us. There is no lack in our salvation, deliverance of our soul. So it will happen. And He's not uh, making this up. He's not just, hey, this is kind of, I wish God would do something. He believes it's going to happen. And those who fear God know this to be the case. Those who trust in him know it will come to pass that God will not hold back any good thing, verse 10. You will have it all, brothers and sisters. You just need patience. (laughs) And you will be given patience, because that is the fruit of the Spirit. Seeking God again, verse uh, 10 and 11. uh, Teaching to fear God, verse 11. Come, you children, listen to me. So he's speaking as a father to those around him, perhaps as a band of soldiers. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So we're back to the idea of the fear of the Lord, verse 9 through 14, on our third point, I forgot to say that earlier, in which uh, he goes from trust and faith to fear of God and the consequences of fearing God in a godly manner. We are called to instruct one another with God's truth as David does here, and sometimes we have to instruct one another to listen. Listen to the Word of God. Remember what God tells us in His Word, to trust in Him, to fear Him with a godly fear, to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to follow Him no matter what. To have holy living through fear is the connection I see in verses 12 through 14. That's why I put this together with 9. He says fear in verse 9. He says fear again in verse 11, in verses 12 to 16. Who is the man who desires life in many days of good days, Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good, and seek peace and pursue it. That's what people do who fear God, who also trust in God, and who also love in God. And Here he's highlighting the fear of the Lord leads to a holy life, a holy living. Not a perfect life, to be sure. Again, we are justified sinners. We are saints and sinners at the same time. And yet real... We are called to control our tongues and avoid lies, to flee evil, to seek goodness and peace. These are those who fear God Almighty. On the other hand, of course, there are those who do not fear God. And we see that mixed here in verses 15 to 22 in the last point. The Lord delivers the righteous, a deliverance from the Lord. Not just blessing God, not just trusting in God, not just fearing God, but there is a consequence from all this which is God delivers us. There is deliverance from God Almighty, the one who has promised us fullness of life. And so, verses 15 and following, we read of the eyes of the Lord on the righteous, and his ears are open to the cry. A similar idea to verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he heard me. And then he says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off their remembrance from the earth. God will slay the wicked, verse 21, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. Those are the people who do not fear Him. Those are the ones who do not trust in Him. So there's a consequence for fearing God. We will have holy living. We will strive to that end and God will protect and deliver us, verses 15 to 22. At the same time, he mentions a couple of times in his deliverance, but he will not deliver these people because they, what, don't fear him is the implication. They're obviously wicked men who like their wickedness, or as we saw from Roe v. Roe v. Wade, they love murdering babies. I mean, if we haven't figured out how wicked men and women can be, even women, because that's one of the biggest things we have in society is it's kind of a lie even in the church, what's the men are really bad, Right. Brothers and sisters, their bloodlust is just, it's just coming out their ears and their eyes. They're just so angry that they can't kill a baby. Because it inconveniences them. God will judge them if they do not repent. They can repent. There is deliverance from that kind of anger and that kind of hate, that kind of lust for murder and blood. If they but fear God and trust in him, Of course, the psalmist doesn't talk about this, but they need to hear that message. They've so got to pray that somehow, some way, they hear that message from somebody, a Christian, a pastor, and not this winsome message of, well, you know, God really loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Brothers and sisters, their murderers in the street wanted to murder some more. I mean, call it what it is. They want to do evil. And they hate the Righteous. And they need to be told that, to repent, the hell is coming for them. But for those, by God's grace, who have changed our hearts, because we know we could be like them if it wasn't God working in us, the eyes of the Lord upon us, and his ears are open to our cries. We cry out to him. He will hear us. Now, of course, again, the metaphor of the eyes of the Lord. God doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have a body like a man. But Rather, it's a picture of his knowledge. He sees and knows all. He's always aware, and he's always hearing us. We cry out, verse 17, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. He does that here and now, of course. He delivers us out of physical trouble. That's why we pray when we're sick. We should continue to pray. Delivers us out of economic trouble and relational troubles. These things happen in the here and now. Not always, not whenever we want it, but it happens here and now. And of course, ultimately, it will be fulfilled in the return of Christ Jesus. And verse 18 is a beautiful set of verses, as we know. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as a contrite spirit. Those who have a broken heart are those who know their sin, know their God, and are humbled and brought low. They know that they deserve judgment and condemnation. They are the ones whom God saves. Those who are repentant and live a life of repentance, brothers and sisters. It is not because we are holy enough or good enough Yes, out of fear, we hold our mouth, we refuse to deceive other people, we depart from evil, but we stumble and fall. And what do we do? We repent, and we're contrite, and we have broken hearts. And God says, I will hear you. He does not hear the proud, those who are lusting after murder, those who are arrogating upon themselves the authority to kill people. He doesn't hear them at all rather warns them from the judgments around us and from the church. This beautiful psalm, we have, Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And we have, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, such as have a contrite spirit. That's what Christ talks about on the Sermon on the Mount. Those who are humbled. Those with broken hearts. Because they know who their Savior is, and they trust in Him instead of themselves. Many are the affliction of the righteous, verse nineteen. But the Lord delivers them all. Again, it talks about deliverance and protection. And brothers and sisters, I remind you, right here, many are the affliction of the righteous. How can David say that? How can you use the word righteous? Now, the heading we have here a Psalm of David when he pretended to be madness before Abimelech, uh, who drove him away and he departed. He hadn't killed yet, he hadn't committed adultery yet, and yet here he was lying and pretending to be something he wasn't before the king. And he says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Brothers and sisters, this makes sense if we understand the doctrine of justification, that God justifies the ungodly, that God declares in the law courts of heaven above those who trust in him, not who obey enough, who think good enough thoughts, who do enough good charity, but those who simply trust and rest upon the finished work of Christ Jesus are declared righteous, as though they fulfilled the law in total when it's in fact Christ who did it and has imputed his perfection to their account. And thus he can speak of the afflictions of the righteous. We are righteous, brothers and sisters, not in and of ourselves. But this is an important fact to remember. Because there is a contrast in the Old Testament, there's a moral contrast in the New Testament, an and antithesis wherein by our situation, our relationship to God who's no longer our judge but our Father and we have been justified and adopted as such that we can speak of ourselves as righteous and the world as unrighteous. Even though the world keeps saying, you're wicked too, shut up. Don't let them shut you up. Rather stand firm in what? Boast in God and praise Him all the day long. He guards all his bones and not one of them is broken. Ah, I think... We've run across this before. I think we recall this text of God guarding, verses 20 to 22. In John nineteen thirty-six. we read, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. John saying, I was there, I saw it. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. He's quoting Psalm 34. Now how can John quote Psalm 34, when clearly David is talking about blessing God, and being humble before God, and fighting against sin, and the like? Because Christ fulfills the ideal picture of the righteous man. Christ is the righteous man par excellence. Whenever we read of perfection, whenever we read of obedience in the Bible, and you read that and you say, well, how can that be? How can that be David? How can that be me? Because first and foremost, it is Christ Jesus himself who has done it all. He has obeyed the Ten Commandments in thought, word, and in deed. He is that righteous one. And none of his bones are broken for our sakes. Now, because we are in Christ Jesus, that means spiritually, more precisely, theologically, we are righteous in him. Not that our bones will never be broken. That's obviously a prophecy of his particular work and person that he did for us. But that nevertheless... We can be called righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Not just Jesus, but we are in Jesus. Which is to say, when you do preaching, and people talk about Christocentric preaching, if it's about Christ, and we forget that Christ, we are united to Christ, and that we are called righteous as well, and we have duties and responsibilities and encouragements that God will protect us and be over us. They're both true. You can speak of us, Here, as well as Christ, but mostly because Christ is the one who's done it all for us and is working in us, that we too are becoming more and more like him. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Verse 22, obviously Christ doesn't need to be redeemed in the way that we are redeemed. Now he's speaking of our souls, of his servants, we who are his people, that God has watched and protected and redeemed our souls through the blood of Christ Jesus. And none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. We trust in Christ Jesus, who is the righteous one, who is the righteous one par excellence, perfect in all that he is, is the man, the perfect God-man. And God will deliver us because we trust in him and not in ourselves. He delivers our souls He covers our sins. He forgives us in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters. And that is the hope and the joy of the psalmist. And that's why he says, I will always bless the Lord. I will make my boast in him. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Blessed are you, brothers and sisters, who trust in our God and Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Help us, Lord and Savior, not to be discouraged, not to focus upon our weak faith, but focus upon Christ Jesus, who is the righteous one that you have delivered in the hands of wicked men, and ultimately, Lord, delivered us through him, that we, who are united to our head, by faith, by those who trust in him, shall never be condemned. We praise you, God. Amen. Let us stand and sing Psalm 34C, 34C. Thank you. of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all.